Welcome back to another Sloppy Joe episode of Rock and Roll History, the podcast where we stage dive headfirst in all the hits, misses, and often overlooked songs and stories throughout the history of rock and roll. I'm your host, Mitch McConnell. But who cares? Come on, everybody, let's go rock and roll! Today's main event takes place on Saturday, January 21st, 1961. The Beatles had just performed for the very first time with their new bass player Paul McCartney at the Litherland Town Hall in Lancashire, England. Barry Gordy had just signed the no-hit Supremes to Motown Records as Walt Disney's animated film The 101 Dalmatians was getting set for release. And of course, our old friend Elvis Presley was about to hit number one in the charts with his intimate new track titled Are You Lonesome Tonight? Our story today follows the tale of an American rock and roller and songwriter named Del Shannon. Now hopefully you already know who this man is, and assuming you do, I'm sure you already know his song Runaway, one of the greatest songs of all time. But do you know anything else about Del Shannon? Do you know the story behind the song? I doubt you do, and I also doubt you can name any of his other songs. I'm sure some of you diehards are screaming right now, hats off to Larry, and the real ones are out there shouting, little town flirt. But to those people I ask, do you know anything else after that? Sadly, the answer is probably no, which is a shame and exactly why I'm highlighting this guy today. He was more than a one-hit wonder and his often overlooked musical legacy should be dug into more by contemporary rock and rollers since his work is so good. But before we start digging and before we get to experience the story of Runaway, let's roll that clock on back like we always do, this time to December 30th, to the year 1934, and find out who this songwriting rock and roll icon Del Shannon really is. Del Shannon was born Charles Whedon Westover on December 30, 1934, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, to Bert and Leon Mosier Westover. The family resided in Coopersville, which was a small farming town just outside of Grand Rapids area. Del was the oldest of three kids, having two younger sisters. He was musical from an early age, since his mother nurtured his interest in music while also teaching him how to play ukulele. Growing up, he really got into country and western music, Hank Williams, Hank Snow, and Lefty Frizzell being among some of his early favorites. He also gravitated towards other styles of music such as rhythm and blues, doo-wop, and he liked the fun of the early stirrings of rock and roll. The Ink Spots were one group that he has stated as an early influence. He even noted that he was introduced and learned how to do falsetto by singing along to some of their songs, specifically stating the track titled We Three as one of them. His first guitar was an acoustic guitar that was purchased for $5. He didn't have a guitar pick, and so he would strum away on the thing until his fingers would bleed. Eventually, he would make some picks out of cardboard, and this helped him get more acquainted and comfortable on the instrument. He would then graduate to a Sears Roebuck guitar that he ordered from a catalog when he was 14 years old. He was so excited for the guitar that he would walk down the Coopersville train station and wait for the package to arrive so that he could get it as soon as possible. Once he had the guitar in his hand, he never put it back down. His high school principal said that he would play the guitar everywhere he went, and the instrument was like a crutch for him. 
He would play it while walking to school halls, in class, during lunch. It got to the point where the principal would allot him time to play alone in the locker room so that he could practice and not be such a distraction to the other students. In here, Charles would practice singing along, and he said the acoustics in the locker room were great. He would then bring in his amplifier, set it on one of the toilets, and play and sing along as the sounds echoed all around him, which was great for practicing and helped him fine-tune his skills and develop his own big, booming singing style. And while his voice was big, he was a small guy being only 5 foot 6 and 140 pounds. This meant that he was too small to play football, and so he ended up as the water boy for the high school's football team. And as you guessed, he brought his guitar along to that too, and he would entertain the crowd with his guitar between plays and when not tending to the water for the team. Sitting on the sidelines didn't do much for his popularity, and of course, naturally, he struggled to get the girls. He did, however, ask one girl to the senior prom, to which she agreed, but then the two weeks later, she dumped him for another boy, leaving him dateless for the big night. This sent young Charles into a tailspin and kickstarted a bout of depression, which he seemed to carry with him for the rest of his life. Westover would channel this heartbreak into his music, and as DelShannon.com states, these feelings of early loss, hurt, and betrayal would be a theme for a lot of his original music. He bounced back, though, and a short while later met another young lady from Michigan named Shirley Nash, and the two quickly hit it off and began dating. He took a job picking strawberries and delivering flowers by day, and at night he would write and play music or take Shirley out to the theater. In 1954, however, this happy little life would come to a halt because just like every young man at the time, Charles was drafted into the United States Army because of the war. He married Shirley so she could come along with him, and the two were sent to Fort Knox, Kentucky before getting shipped out to Stuttgart, Germany. He spent three years in Germany, and while there, joined the Army's Get Up and Go radio show, and he also played guitar in a band called The Cool Flames, which earned him a military-issued Best Musicians Award because his guitar playing was so great. Charles and Shirley Westover returned back home in 1958 and settled down in Battle Creek, Michigan, which Dell said himself was a terrible place to live. Town really only being known for its Kellogg cereal production. In Battle Creek, Charles bounced around between menial jobs like building furniture and lift truck driving. Eventually, he fell into a job selling carpets. All these jobs bored the hell out of him, so for an escape, he would spend his evenings hanging around a dive bar called the High Low Club, which was known for its live music. Eventually, after spending enough time in the club schmoozing and boozing with the musicians that would play there, Charles was hired as a guitarist by Doug DeMott, the frontman of a group called the Moonlight Ramblers a group that, due to DeMott's heavy drinking, had little success. The group released a few singles including I'm Stepping Out Tonight and My Lonely Prayer in 1958. Later, they would release Fingers on Fire and Upside Down Boogie, but those were met with similar results and didn't sell well or make their way onto the radio. Despite their lack of success, this was a crucial point of Charles's formative years as a musician. DeMott would serve as a mentor to Westover, giving him opportunities to sing on stage, play lead guitar, and even encouraged him to write his own original songs. However, unfortunately, DeMott was eventually fired by the high-low club's manager, Larry Gilbert, due to his drinking getting out of control. This twist of fate would also be a blessing in disguise for Westover, as he was hired to be the new frontman singer of this house band. Adopting the stage name Charlie Johnson, Westover took this new challenge in stride and decided in spirit of new beginnings to rename the band, and so he decided on the Big Little Show Band. 
The Big Little Show band quickly started to gain popularity in this town that was seemingly wet behind the ears. The band enjoyed their evening singing, playing, and drinking along with the crowd late into the night. This musical party managed to catch the attention of a man named Charlie Marsh, who was a local disc jockey that began to frequent the high-low club. He was on the search for a new talent, and so this led Marsh to take over Westover as his first manager. Charlie Johnson and the Big Little Show Band kicked things off in late 1958, and things were coming together nicely for Westover. With his new manager and after a few lineup adjustments, the band seemed to finally have a consistent core group, which featured Lauren Duggar on bass, Dick Pace on guitar, and a young 18-year-old Dick Parker on drums. That didn't last long, though, as eventually Pace had to leave the band because he had gotten a job out in California working at Knott's Berry Farm, of all places, in order to help support his large and continually growing family. To fill this void, and since Charles was such a solid guitar player, the band decided that the only thing they were missing was someone who could play the keys. And that's when young drummer Dick Parker made a suggestion that would change the course of rock and roll history and music history for that matter, when he suggested they audition a friend, and his name was Max Crook, and he was from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Charles was hesitant at first because Parker said his friend was an accordion player who could also play the organ. Parker then urged him to give Max Crook a shot. Parker said, he has this small homemade box that he can play with one hand and then the other hand he plays with the organ. It's electronics, you gotta check it out. Charles said, well I don't know about that, I don't know about electronics. To which Max responded that he had to check it out because that little box made quote-unquote otherworldly sounds. This intrigued Westover, and so he decided to give this guy a shot. At the very least, he could see what this little box was all about. A few days later, Max Crook appears for his audition, carrying his own Kool-Aid, a bag of cookies, and his small homemade box covered in knobs. Apparently, most of the knobs were in place as a decoy because he didn't want anyone to figure out how it worked. Max then sat down on the organ, connected his box to the top, and then he introduced it as the Musatron. With his left hand on the keys and his right hand on the box, he began to play. The big little band stopped in their tracks because this big little sound was in fact otherworldly. Charles couldn't believe his eyes or ears. This one guy was making all this sound? It sounded like he had a full stringed orchestra behind him. Before the last note could even finish ringing out, Westover leaned in and told Crook, Man, you're hired, and the rest is history. And since this is rock and roll history, I'll explain what happens next. Max would then join the band, and he and Charles, recognizing the genius in each other, would quickly become good friends. They would play music all the time, and since Max was an electronics whiz, he had a tape machine set up that they used to record some of the first songs they wrote together. Some of these songs would include titles like Little Oscar, I'm Blue With You, and Living In Misery. They even managed to record some live tracks from the stage at the High Low Club, and these sessions would include songs like Something Like Something, G Jam, High Low Boogie, and High Low Blues. They even recorded a song called Face Of An Angel and shopped it around to Chess Records, and I know, I know, I'll do an episode on that soon, and Mercury Records, both who told Charles they liked it and that they would get back to him, but of course, they didn't, and he never heard back from them ever again. This was highly frustrating, so they searched for help from Westover's manager, Charlie Marsh, which didn't bring them any luck either. This was when Max comes again to save the day and suggests that they try to seek the help of a DJ from his hometown of Ann Arbor who could help them get a record out, a man named Ollie McLaughlin. Ollie McLaughlin helped Max put a single out a few years earlier with Crook's own project called The White Bucks. Here's a quick listen of that rockin' record. 
Man, Max is the man. If that ain't rock and roll, I don't know what is. So of course, this route seemed to be the best option for the boys, and so they reached out to Ollie, and he agreed to come down to the high-low to check them out. But they told him to come after the club had closed to avoid any issues, but mainly it was because McLaughlin was a black man, and this was an all-white club in the barely 1960s Michigan. Mr. McLaughlin arrived hours after the club had shut down, and they showed him what they could do. He liked what he heard and he left with demo tapes to take with him to Detroit, where he would pitch the boys' act to his friends Harry Balk and Irving McConnick at Talented Artists Incorporated. Talented Artists Incorporated was an established label who had just launched the career of Johnny and the Hurricanes and their chart-topping garage party hit, Red River Rock. In July of 1960, the boys got the call from Harry Balk to come down and work out a contract. Their dreams were realized and the two were excited to begin their musical careers. Before signing, though, Balk told the guys they needed better stage names. On the spot, Charles Westover then came up with the name, Del Shannon, named after a combination of his carpet store's boss's Cadillac Coupe de Ville and in honor of a drunk guy from the high-low who wanted to become a wrestler and was calling himself Mark Shannon, even though his real name was just Bob White. And I'm not making that up. Max Crook, who I personally don't think needed a stage name with a sweet name like that, decided to go solely with Maximilian, light years before single-named artists like Nico, Cher, or Prince. So now Del Shannon and Maximilian grabbed their pens, signed on the dotted line, and were now each professional musicians locked into a five-year contract. Immediately, Dell was shipped off to New York to record a single titled The Search, backed with I'll Always Love You, but this session ended up being scrapped since Dell was so nervous. And of course, Cool as a Cucumber Max had his first two original compositions sent to Johnny and the Hurricanes to be recorded by the band. These tracks were Mr. Lonely and Seventh Hour. Dell was depressed that his session didn't go well, but Ollie McLaughlin assured him it would be okay and chalked it up to beginner stage fright. He told Dell instead of taking it so seriously that maybe he should try his hand at writing something a little more upbeat. So Dell got to work and sent a new demo tape featuring songs like Daydream, The Prom, One More Time, Condemned to Die, and Honeybee. It wasn't any of these songs that caught his attention though. Between the tracks there was a clip of an old track that Dell had recorded over. This was it, McLaughlin thought. This song sounds like a hit. He asked him what the song was called, to which Dell responded with, of course, Little Runaway. It was a throwaway song that they would freestyle on back at the high-low. McLaughlin loved it though and had them re-record the demo so he could take it back up to Detroit to negotiate another recording session for Shannon. Upon hearing this new song, both Balk and Mechanic refused. Harry Balk told McLaughlin, you know the problem with this song, Ollie, is that it sounds like three different songs trying to come together. Ollie was persistent though and fought hard to get them to compromise. He told them that they would be missing out on a massive hit if they let this one go. Balk wasn't totally sold but agreed to give it a chance. He told them to make sure Max came along too with a few of his own originals and that little Musitron too so they had a plan B in case Dell failed to perform again. It was now winter and Dell and Max got in a car with a broken heater and made the 700 mile trek from Michigan to New York City to record. They arrived on January 21st, 1961. They walked into the Bell Sound recording studio with the Musitron in hand. Bell Sound was one of the first professional four track recording studios in the world at the time. It was a state of the art studio and they had session musicians ready to go for this special day.
This lineup included Al Kaiola on guitar, who you've heard on many Paul Anka hits, including Diana, Frankie Avalon's Romper Stomper, Dee Dee Dinah, Rosemary Clooney's Sultry, Come On In My House, Buddy Holly and the Cricket's legendary Rave On, Bobby Darren's Dream Lover, all of Neil Sedaka songs, just to name a few. Seriously though, look up this guy's recording history. It's insane. I'll have a link on our site, www.rockandrollhistory.com. Also on this session was Milt Hilton, who played bass for Cab Calloway for 16 years, and drummer Joe Marshall, who played with Duke Ellington and was cited by shufflin' Bernard Purdy as one of his key influences. But being surrounded by such great musicians and placed in a premier studio like this, of course had Dell shook up and nervous again, just like before. Max Crook said, You have to understand Dell was this small town guy who was self-taught when it came to playing music. Here we were with now all these famous session musicians who could read music charts and play licks like you wouldn't believe, and here was Dell, just a guy who wrote a hit song. Observing this, Secret Weapon Max sat down and began hooking up his Musitron and got to work. As he was plugging it in, the producer started to helicopter over him, telling him where to plug in what and plug this into that, and the session guy scoffed over in the corner at this little electronic box. But as he began to play, everyone was taken aback and their respect was instantly earned. They then all put their heads down and got to work with the focus on getting down four good tracks. Two Maximilian Originals and two Del Shannon Originals, and one of those, of course, being Runaway. From start to finish, the entire session only took three hours. They knew right away they had a hit on their hands. From the control room before the mix was even finalized, they began calling distributors and showing them the track through the phone so that they could place their orders. Runaway was released February 18, 1961, and by March, Dell received a phone call from Harry Ball who told him it was selling 80,000 copies per day. Here's a clip of Dell describing the phone call, and please forgive the poor audio quality. just came out of nowhere, you know. I mean, I called up one day my manager, uh, and I said, I was working in this horrible club in Battle Creek, Michigan, the Hilo Club. I mean, the fights and knifings and bottle throwing. And I says, uh, we just cut this record, how's it doing? And he said, it's selling about 80,000 records a day. I says, is that good? <laughs> is that good? I had no idea about the record business. And he said, yes, and you're opening next week uh, at the Paramount. And I couldn't believe it, you know. The Broadway Paramount. That's right, yeah, with... Uh, with Dion and Jackie Wilson and all these acts where you come out and you do your, your hit and then you go back to your dressing room. You do it five times a day and in between they play a Frankie Avalon movie or something. So <laughs> it was really shocking. I didn't know what to do. They took my guitar away from me, my old manager. Uh, you don't use a guitar. He had a big cigar. You don't use a guitar. You, you do like Frank Sinatra. You get cufflinks. You wear a suit. So now Del Shannon was a headlining act, and by April was appearing on Dick Clark's American Bandstand, and now the rest is history. Del Shannon would then go back in the studio and have more success with songs like Hats Off to Larry, Little Town Flirt, Keep Searching, Swiss Made, Do You Want to Dance, Stranger in Town, covered a lot of material, including the Beatles' From Me to You in June of 1963. Being the very first person to chart in the United States with a Lennon-McCartney song, ushering in and opening the door for the British invasion to come in and take over. Many, if not most of his contemporaries didn't last the invasion, but Dell did, and he continued to release charting records and stayed current with the times, even recording a late 60s psychedelic album titled And The Music Plays On, later remixed and put out as Home and Away, 
which is good and I recommend you check it out, along with the rest of his fantastic discography. Elvis Presley even recorded a cover of one of Del Shannon's songs, and, and Del himself recorded it with Jeff Lynne of ELO and Tom Petty, which is all fantastic. Del's ability to blend catchy melodies with poignant storytelling, songs with unforgettable riffs, and even a musitron, which was basically the first time an electronic instrument was featured in a pop song, further emphasized Shannon's willingness to experiment with different sounds that set him apart from other rockers of his day. With Runaway, Shannon established himself as a trailblazer in the rock and roll genre. His influence extended to numerous artists who were inspired by his unconventional vocal range and emotionally driven performances. The distinctive falsetto in Runaway served as a blueprint for many singers who sought to create their own unique styles within the rock genre. His songwriting touched on themes that resonated with a wide audience including love, heartache, and teenage angst. His ability to connect with the listeners on a personal level helped solidify his place in rock and roll history. Beyond his songwriting, Shannon's stage presence and live performances also left an indelible mark. His energetic and charismatic shows captivated audiences, leaving a lasting impression on fans and fellow musicians alike. As a result, he became a role model for aspiring rock and roll artists seeking to develop their own unique stage personas. Del Shannon's influence on rock and roll history continues to reverberate throughout the years. Many contemporary artists acknowledge him as an impact on their own musical style and cite him as an inspiration. His willingness to experiment with new sounds and techniques helped shape the evolution of rock and roll, and his songs remain timeless classics in the genre's extensive catalog. His legacy as a trailblazer and pioneer in the genre will forever be remembered, and his contributions to rock and roll continue to inspire and resonate with audiences worldwide. Shannon was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1999 and into the Michigan Rock and Roll Legends Hall of Fame in 2005. But he wasn't around to receive these well-deserved accolades because sadly on February 8, 1990, Charles Westover committed suicide by shooting himself with a 22 caliber rifle in his home in Santa Clarita, California. And this is the point where other shows would advertise to you a therapy service or something, but I'm not going to do that to you. With losses like this one and recent losses like the incredible artist Sinead O'Connor, I want to use this time for us all to take a beat and reflect on our lives and how fleeting it all is. Mental health is a very real thing, and we should all try to remember to be aware of it. Whether it's you or someone you know, remember to take a step back for yourself and the people you love. It's okay to face these issues. and. I would know because as someone who's dealt with clinical depression for ages, I know the frustrating struggle and how rough it can be, especially in these times we live in now. And while it may seem that nothing, not even the power of rock and roll is strong enough to overcome this constant battle, we should all remember to appreciate life, love ourselves and each other, and we can all overcome it together. If you or someone you love struggles with mental health issues, do not hesitate to seek help if you need it. There is help if you want it, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with seeking it. And in this life, when things are looking bleak, we need to remember to keep searching for things that make us happy, and search for things that make us full. Because it's not the things that will create the love and happiness for us, but it's the search itself where our true happiness lies. Sorry for getting all serious and emotional, but you know, this stuff is real, and I care about you guys, so I just want to spread my love and support. Not sure where to go from here, guys. I don't normally do this kind of stuff. Uh, but let me leave you with these words. Remember to keep searching and follow the sun. Rest in peace, Del Shannon. Thank you for your beautiful contributions to rock and roll. You are sorely missed.
And so that concludes another episode of Rock and Roll History. Man. In all seriousness, guys, take care of each other. Look out for yourself. I don't really know what to say after an episode like this. So just remember to stick around. And remember to rock and roll! Don't use a guitar and get cufflinks. You wear a suit.